0: You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made.
1: Here's your host, Jim Harold. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you today, and it is a red-letter day. You know, it's, it's not that common you get to talk to someone who has created and breathed life into a character that is truly iconic. And that is the case today because I can say three words and I know that a mental picture is going to pop in your mind. What if I tell you the soup Nazi? Well, (laughs) we have the man behind that character, Larry Thomas, and we're so glad to have him with us today. Now, I want to make clear this is just one small thing that Larry has done in his long-term career here. He's been on multiple television shows like CSI, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. He's been in movies, including one of the Austin Powers movies, and he continues continues to uh, create roles on an ongoing basis. I think recently he just won or was nominated for an Independent Film Award, and we're so glad to have him with us today. Larry Thomas, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you.
1: I have to ask you, start from the beginning. How did you get into acting? I mean, was this something you knew that you wanted to do since you were a little kid? Or is it something that came on maybe a a little later and you just stumbled in it? How would it go for you?
0: Well, yeah, I was probably like a lot of kids in this world that they're addicted to television and movies. In my case, we kind of moved around a lot. My dad uh, took off when I was young and my mom... Was just a single working mom, always looking for a better neighborhood. And I, I was in a position where, you know, I was always the new kid in school. I didn't know anybody. So my friend was the television set. And, and I loved movies, you know, to the point where I really like was, was living in them. That's the only time I was happy was when I was watching an old movie or watching television. And, you know, I, I never thought about doing that because, you know, I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up a little bit on Long Island, Queens, you know, and I, I didn't, it just didn't occur to me that a guy could become an actor. I just felt they were who they were and I was who I was, you know. You had to have something amazing about you and then someone would see it and they would go, hey, I want you to be in the movies. And um, so I grew up not ever thinking of of. Joining the drama department or doing a play or no, I, I never did any of those things in school. I was always interested in getting a job. I started working when I was ten, and you know, I, I in high school I would leave school early to go at noon to go to a job. And um, there was a drama department going on in my high school, but I had no idea they even existed. And uh, most of those kids from that high school drama department all ended up going to the junior college next door. They used to joke about that it was still connected to the high school, but, you know, they'd go into the theater department there. And I had decided to major in journalism. I, I thought that being a news reporter might be just like the coolest, most fun thing. And I used to write some stuff and, you know, got encouragement from my English classes that I might have had a little talent as a writer. And so I was doing, you know, almost, I did almost uh, two years of, of journalism. And uh, I think I had my AA degree. And um, you had the credits, I should say, I never went and picked up the degree. But uh, during the summer, I met this girl that I remembered from high school, who was now in the theater department at the, at the college. And her name was Stacy Schaefer. And, You know, I asked her out. She wasn't completely discouraging, but, you know, she gave me her phone number, but it was a kind of, well, call me during the summer. So that I spent that entire summer calling her as often as I felt comfortable. And she always had an excuse or a reason why we couldn't go out. And so, you know, I always, I get a lot of laughter from guys when I tell this story because every guy knows this feeling. It's like, well am i deluding myself is she not interested or is she maybe she's just really busy all the time and <laughs> she likes me you know so i went to register for classes that fall and i saw in the schedule the theater classes and i thought theater that's what she that's her department and i thought theater acting 101 voice and diction 101 and i thought why don't i just take a couple of these classes and I'm sure she'll be in them. And then, you know, I could, I could really see if she wants to go out with me. You know, I was just turning 21, so I felt like I had all the time in the world. And uh, so I took those theater classes. And, you know, the second I, I, they put a speech in my hand, it was Shakespeare's from As You Like It, uh, what they call the All the World's a Stage speech, commonly known. And, um, you know, I, I got up there and I did it and my hands were shaking and my body was shaking, but it was like the single most exciting thing I'd ever done. And I immediately that weekend going out with all my friends, I would go like, what would you guys think if I became an actor? And they were all laughing their heads off, you know, <laughs> uncontrollably not
1: laughing now.
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought I might lose one or two of them, you know? But because they thought it was ridiculous, like why would you be an actor? Why you know who would hire you as an actor? And but I I got very into it, you know I I got very dedicated, and I just started working at it. I wasn't very good at first. I mean, all the teachers were pretty definite about one of one of them who's been a lifelong friend ever since. Even took me aside. He was slightly a, an older guy than me, and he just said, "Man, he goes he goes. You're just at that point where." You need to have a life for yourself. Don't do this. He goes, you don't have any talent. This would be a big mistake. And uh, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot for a little while. And, you know, by the next semester, the guy was writing me a letter recommending me to the American Conservatory Theater saying I've never seen somebody learn so fast and develop so fast as this guy. He works so hard at it. You know, he lives eats, sleeps, and breathes nothing but this. And it's true, that's what I did, you know. I just, I immersed myself. Because it's a world that I'd always dreamed of being a part of, but I just never made the attempt. So then I was an actor, and I was in my 20s. And, you know, I have a book out called Confessions of a Soup Nazi, an Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And besides, uh, you know, 52 of my own recipes because my dad was a chef, but he left when I was little and my mom never learned to cook. So I cooking became a big hobby of mine all the time I was growing up. So I have like 52 recipes, talk about food, stories about food. But most, uh, most uh, important to me is I chronicle the story of my acting career from the beginning up till that point that I wrote the book, which was 2014. And, you know, I talk about all the lucky things that happened to me while I wasn't getting a lucky break. I had a really interesting bout of of fate because nothing was really happening. I wasn't getting cast in anything big. Um, Nobody, you know, no casting people or agents were really like impressed with me. Uh, yet at the same time, I was having all these little lucky things happen. Like one of the things that most actors uh, in my day and still in this day today struggle with are getting their their union cards. It's it's like a closed SAG is a closed union. You got to get a job to get the union card. You got to
1: have a card to get a job.
0: <laughs> and back when I got it, it was like three hundred dollars. Now it's three thousand dollars. You know, and you know how inflation is. It's like $300 may have been a lot in 1980, but it it wasn't like $3,000 today.
1: Right, right. It wasn't a multiple of 10.
0: Yeah, and, you know, uh, payroll wise. So, yeah, young kids now, man, they get the chance to buy that union card. They got to come up with three grand, you know, that's a lot for them. But. I just had this lucky thing happen. I was doing singing telegrams at the time. They were hip, and I saw it as a good way to throw myself into the fire, you know what I mean, and, and like, take away all the fear. If you could walk into a restaurant and start singing at somebody and tap dancing or whatever, you know, and everything else would be easy. So I was, I was working crew on this play for uh, what was then a pretty important Small theater group in Hollywood, and there were you know a lot of working actors in it, and I was doing my singing telegrams on the side. And one night it was someone's birthday. We went to this restaurant. She got really drunk and demanded I do a singing telegram for her, which just kicking and screaming and scratching, you know, dragging my feet. I tried not to do, but I finally ended up doing it. And it turned out that one of the actors was dating a producer of a sitcom. And they needed a singing telegram messenger for an episode, so I literally got my first job and my union cards from that one job. And so you'd you know you'd think that at that moment things would have been much easier for me. They weren't because, like I said, I just I couldn't get anybody in. I auditioned for everything. I couldn't get anybody interested in casting me. And so as the uh, time went by. I would, I would do anything to do a play. I'd write the damn play and then cast all my friends in it and then direct it myself. And, you know, it's, I used to call it beg, borrow, and steal theater because I, you know, was in a group of people that we would, we would pretty much do anything to get a play up and running, you know, just so we could be busy. But, you know, during all that time, I would have a a full-time job, like, like most actors. And, uh, that really all went on until 15 years later when I got the audition for Seinfeld.
1: Wow. Now, the thing that I think people lose sight of is they think of uh, I, when someone says they're going to be an actor, immediately their mind goes to the red carpet and goes to these glamorous stars and, and all this. But that, I don't really think that's what it's about for 98 percent of actors. I mean, I think you're talking about you use the phrase working actors. It is. A, it's a job. It's an art, but it's also in a job. And I think there are a lot more character actors out there. And I think that if you look at people like Margot Martindale or real true character actors, I think they're kind of the unsung heroes.
0: Yeah. That's what I always tell people I hope from my book most of all. There's two things I hope. I hope someone pulls a Julie and Julia and actually cooks their way through my book. (laughs) And the other thing I hope is that people will learn something about what a journeyman actor actually is because other than the couple of movie stars you see in the movie, the rest of them are these journeyman actors, and you go like, "Oh, I've seen that guy," you know, or "Hey, that guy's really good. I've never seen him in anything. Have I seen him in anything?" And these are the people that fill out the casts, and they're the people that you know have really worked hard and have really spent a lifetime trying to get work, just trying to get paid. And uh, you know, obviously, there's going to be a thousand of of them for every one actor that ends up making a living at it, you know, and not having to continually, you know, my best friend, he's, he's a terrific actor. I've, I've worked with him. We toured the country with Barbara Eden and the female version of the odd couple for like three years playing the Costasuela brothers. And we, you know, had such a great time. He's such a good actor. And to this day, You know, he's in his late 50s and he still bartends parties. He does work on TV from time to time and films and stuff. And he'll like have to serve someone that he's actually worked with, you know, but that's the life of a journeyman actor. You may never get enough to make an actual living, you know, uh, especially if you don't want to live, spend your entire life in like a one room room single you know maybe you want to get married maybe you want to have kids you know and still have like a real life so it's yeah it's the journeyman actors and actresses that people have no idea what what their lives are like they just read people magazine and the inquirer and they think they know what brad pitt and angelina are up to you know and how they live but they don't know how all those other actors live that they see all the time you know
1: That's an excellent point. I'm glad we got to cover that a little bit because I think it's important for people to know. So we got to ask you about the Soup Nazi. Tell us about how that happened for you.
0: Well, I was in an acting class at that time at a place called the Beverly Hills Playhouse. The acting teacher was the late Milton who's He was one of the biggest acting teachers, East Coast, West Coast, for many years. And, uh, I, you know, he helped me so much. I mean, Under his teaching, my acting improved just endlessly. And he one day just sort of gave me a challenge. You got six weeks to get a paying, you know, professional industry acting job or you're out of class. And it was a crazy six weeks, and I did a lot of crazy things that were not quite uh, characteristic for me. And one of those things was, you know, where I come from, you admire somebody; that's enough. You don't like ask them for a favor. You don't impose on them, that kind of thing. I've never been very good at asking for favors or imposing on anybody. But my fellow students, we had in our in our class, not our, you know the master's class, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, who was also the head substitute teacher of our class, which was the advanced class. And Jeffrey and I used to do a lot, of, a lot of interesting dances. People thought like he really liked me because two similar guys, two Jewish guys from metropolitan cities. He was from San Francisco. I was from New York. And we seemed to have a kind of a shorthand. And I learned a lot from him. And everybody got together that, you know, was trying to help me to get that job. And they said, you got to ask Jeffrey to do something for you. And I said, everybody is going to ask Jeffrey to do something for them. I mean, we we need to stay away from that. We're lucky to have this man, you know, because he's not just a teacher and a student, but he's out there, he's on a TV show, you know, at the time he was Hank Kingsley in the Larry Sanders.
1: Oh yeah, Larry Sanders show. And
0: I said, he's like burning up the TV right now as one of everyone's favorite actors. You know, everyone, there's hundreds of students in this whole playhouse and they could all be asking Jeffrey to do something, you know. But they kept on me about it. So I wrote him a note and I said, everyone thinks you like my work. And I said, the other night you said something really good about that monologue I did. So, you know, maybe you could put your money where your mouth is and and introduce me to the guy that casts your TV show. And he I don't know how long it took after he read the note. But the next day I got a call from his assistant just saying, you have this interview Monday morning at 9:30." with Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director of the Larry Sanders show. And I went, Oh God, really? <laughs> wow.
1: Be careful what you ask for.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, that's probably the biggest step that I had all through the 15 years of being a union actor and about three or four years before that of being an actor. And that probably was the biggest step I was about to take, you know? And, um, I was really worried about it because, you know, it's kind of a catch 22 situation meeting an important casting person. It's like, it's lose, lose really, because you're, you're only, they're only seeing you because you're nobody and you don't work. But at the same time, you're going to walk in and they're going to go, so what have you you been up to? And there's no, you know, they've heard five foot nine, (laughs) you know, they've heard stories about your kids trying to avoid your career But sooner or later, you got to talk about your non-existent career. And so what is that going to mean to someone who's, you know, auditioning actors that have just come off Broadway for guest spots on TV shows, you know? So um, one of my fellow classmates reminded me that my day job was probably something that most people in the industry don't even think about until they need it. (laughs) But I was a bail bondsman.
1: Oh, really?
0: <laughs> yeah, I fell into it in the mid-80s, and it was a great job. I would investigate courts. I would bail people out of jail. It was a great job for an actor because my hours were, were varied, and I could kind of make them up myself.
1: No freedom for you. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> so you know, my, one of my friends said, as soon as you tell him you're a bail bondsman, believe me, it, it'll go well. You know, and I thank her name is Jody Taffel. I thank her to this day. I just did on Facebook the other day. We were talking about some soup Nazi thing, and I said, nobody knows the the hand you had in this. But, you know, it was her idea. And sure enough, I went in there, and Mark is a doll. He's just an incredible sweetheart of a guy, which not everybody in the casting director industry is. But, you know, he asked me what I was up to, and I said, well, you know, I don't know if Jeffrey told you, but... I'm a bail bondsman, you know, is my day job. And of course he just went, what? And I had him just eating out of the palm of my hand for the rest of the hour. He, I, we never even like talked much about what I've done as an actor. He just wanted to know all about what you do as a bail bondsman. And then at the end of the uh, interview... He just said, Oh, by the way, you know, I, I see on your resume that you do dialects. And I said, Yeah, you know, with a face like mine, that was one of the first things I had to get good at. And he goes, Good, because, you know, I also cast Seinfeld, and we often need, you know, different varying ethnic New York types, and, you know, you've got that look. And I said, Yeah, I love Seinfeld. It's my favorite show. So, yeah, anytime. And sure enough, about, I don't know, it's only about two weeks later, maybe. My very non-existent, non-present warehouse agent that probably, when, the, when they called and mentioned my name, he probably didn't even know who I was, gave me a call and said, I just got a call from from Mark Hirschfeld's office of Seinfeld. And, ah, you know, they, they want to bring you in. It's, by the way, this is Mike, your agent. You know, I'm going, yeah, Mike, I, I know who you are. And he goes, well, I, I you know, I, I didn't submit you for it or anything. They just requested you for some some character on Seinfeld. And I'm going like, you know, Mike, you're doing all the wrong things. I, I might have thought you had something to do with this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, You know, I mean, I was just joking with him because I knew why Mark called me in, you know. Anyway, so all he could tell me was the character's called the Soup Nazi, and they'd like you to come in tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., with a Middle Eastern accent and just come in a little early because there's nothing available for you to see tonight, you know, script wise. So, you know, I went home, Middle Eastern accent. I immediately got the idea of putting Lawrence of Arabia in the VCR and listening to Omar Sharif (laughs) because, you know, I'm a Jewish kid from New York my mom and all her friends. I'll never forget the time they were all drunk on martinis one night. I was a little kid and they were trying to call Omar Sharif okay. to you know, <laughs> information. And it was so funny. So I, I listened to a couple of phrases, is all I needed. I mean he there was this thing he said to Peter O'Toole when they were in the desert. He goes, You're drifting, Lawrence. Stop drifting, be warned <laughs> And I thought, That's perfect. That's a Middle Eastern accent. And so I worked on that a little bit. And I was married to an actress at the time, and we kicked around. We both were huge Seinfeld fans. Our ritual at the time was, our, we had a, a very young son who was about two years old at the time, and our ritual was we would videotape Frasier on Tuesday nights and Seinfeld on Thursday nights. And then on Sunday afternoon, when we put him down for a nap, we would make lunch and sit and watch Frasier and Seinfeld. That was our Sunday ritual. So we were huge fans of the show. And so we kicked around a little bit what the soup Nazi might be. And, you know, I said, I I think he's probably some really militant, you know, ex-military food vendor that serves soup out of a cart, like, you know, on a corner in New York. So then I had this other, a buddy of mine who lived down the street, stand-up comedian uh, slash actor named Tom Ayers. And he was kind of my closest buddy while I was on this search for an acting job and I called him and I said you're not going to believe this cuz the day before I had au- he had gotten me an audition for the Power Rangers which was a totally <laughs> non-union show that was paying actors like $150 a day or something and so I said you're never going to believe this I got an audition for Seinfeld tomorrow morning and he goes oh my god so what is it you know and I explained it to him and he goes he goes so there's nothing on paper what if they ask you to you know, improvise it. And I said, well, I'm a good improver, you know. And he goes, improv something for me right now. And I just said, um, okay, the, you know, the people are online at his soup cart. And he sees George and he goes, you, small fry, I don't like you. You're bald. Go to the end of the line or you get no soup. <laughs> and my friend goes, I like that no soup thing. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah, it's kind of catchphrasy." And I went, Really? And he goes, yeah, he goes, so whatever, you know, if they have a script for you or if they don't, make sure you throw that no soup in there. And so the next morning, I was preparing to wear blue jeans, a white T-shirt, and one of my wife's aprons because she was waiting tables. That was her day job. And, uh, you know, I dressed like that. I was looking in the mirror. I hadn't shaved in a couple of days. I thought that might look good for being a Middle Eastern guy. And, you know, I looked in the mirror, and I was kind of unsatisfied, and she said, what? And I said, I just have this other idea, but it's stupid. And she goes, what? What is it? And I said, I think the guy wears an Army uniform. I think he's some ex-military guy that never gets the every morning he puts his Army uniform on and goes pushes his cart out there on the street and serves soup in an Army uniform. And she goes, do it. Put it on. So I put the army uniform, you know, I had green pants. I had this old red missile corps army shirt, literally from the seventies. Like someone's older brother gave it to me when he came back from Vietnam. And I always wore that shirt when I was young, but I still had it. And so I put it on and I'm looking in the mirror and my, my wife goes, wait a minute. Oh my God. And she goes to her closet and she comes back with a beret and she puts the beret on my head. And we both just went, oh, my God, (laughs) I look just like Saddam Hussein. (laughs) And remember, this is 1995, right? So he was was big news. He was on the cover of People as Much as Princess Di, I think, at that time. So uh, I said, you know, the only question is, do I have the courage to go in there like this? My God, I'll be the only person dressed like this. So. And I guess maybe I was underestimating other actors, but I, I did go down there and I was the only one dressed. All the other actors were dressed exactly like I was going to dress in the first place. You know, I, I there was a little rack there with the different sides for the different characters auditioning. And I saw the soup Nazi and I pulled the sides out and I went out behind the building because, you know, when you... When you audition, especially like television situations and film situations where you're not in a big theater, you're probably going to be in a little office. The advice that I'd always gotten was go outside and say the lines out loud because you can get in this little office and you're just, you know, you don't want to like hear the sound of your own voice for the first time when you're, you know, reading this thing. So I went outside and I went to read it and literally, you know, the fourth or fifth line in was no soup for you. <laughs> like no one, I couldn't tap anyone on the shoulder and go, Oh my God, could you believe this? Eight. Yeah. It was just a little private joke between me, myself and I. And I thought that's so funny. And Tom's going to die when I tell him this, you know? So I went back in, I, I read for the casting assistant, a guy named Brian Myers, who, who later was casting on his own shows, like just shoot me and whatever. And, he was great. He was very nice. You know, he goes, "Yeah, Mark said that you're good with dialect, so uh, let's just give it a shot." And he laughed in all the right places. There were like the first three scenes out of the eventual six. And I, you know, I, I didn't have much experience with television auditions, so I really didn't know much. I just know it's probably good that the guy voluntarily laughed. And uh,' cause he was reading with me, and then at the end of it, he said something like well we're we're not real sure about this script, but uh you know if if we're going to do it, you know uh we'll get in touch with you or something like that which i um until years later, and maybe sixty television auditions later, I didn't realize what an incredible thing that was if i If I had known more about t v auditions, I would have known that that was a super fantastic sign, because they, if if a casting person, especially in the first read, and the pre-read, if they offer you any information other than thanks, thanks for coming in, you, you probably did something really good, or they really liked it. And But I didn't know that, and so I just, you know, I went my way, I went home, you know, I called Tom, I told him about the line, no soup for you, I told my wife, I think I did a really good job, I felt like I did everything I wanted to do, and he laughed. But I don't know. And then um, three weeks almost went by, which, again, if I had known more about TV, I would have known that means you didn't get it because TV happens really fast. But I didn't know. I just the first week went by. I thought, well, maybe there's still a chance. And I kept going over it in my head because I'm bad at letting go. You know, everybody gives the advice to actors. Go in, do your audition, throw the sides in the wastebasket and let it go. And, and I couldn't do that. I kept going over the lines in my head, you know. Could I have done it differently? Could I have done it better? And I kind of kept thinking, no, that's the way I would do it, you know. But after a couple of weeks, I kind of figured I probably didn't get it. And in, in the third week, I was sure that I didn't get it. So I wrote Jeffrey a note, and I, you know, said, thank you so much, man. I can't tell you how close I got. I auditioned for Seinfeld. It was a big part that had three scenes. And, uh, you know, thank you and everything. And I, I gave it to somebody that was going to class that night because I wasn't going to class. I had some casting director workshop I wanted to go to. And then the next day, that same warehouse agent called me with that same, I've just seen a ghost tone to his voice, going, <laughs> uh, Larry, uh, this is Mike, your agent. You know, didn't you audition for Seinfeld a couple of weeks ago? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, they, they want to see you again. And I'm just going, Mike, don't sound so amazed, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> Ringing vote of confidence.
0: Yeah. And so it was funny because I think that day one of my friends from class called me and said, you weren't in class last night, but Jeffrey was asking about you. He said he had something to tell you. So the next day I went on the callback, which was one of the strangest app morning slash, you know, it really was over by like 1130 of my life. Um, got there a couple of minutes late. I... uh Ran up these stairs into a hallway, and the first thing that caught my eye was the now late, wonderful actor Richard Libertini, who my wife and I loved him, you know, from the in-laws and from the movie All of Me with Steve Martin and Lily Tommen, where he played the guru, and I just loved Richard Libertini, and there he was, and I'm going like, what am I doing here? This is stupid. You know, this is stupid. I can't read against Richard Libertini, you know.
1: And, and folks, if you don't know that name, if you saw him, you'd say, that guy, he's been in everything.
0: Yeah, the guru in that movie, All of Me, with Edwina Baking Bol, Edwina Baking And then the, the South American military general and the original in-laws with the little face painted on his hand going, he's such a handsome man, I want to kiss him, Pepe, you kiss him? And he was just great. Anyway, so almost immediately, uh, Mark Hirschfeld comes out of the room and he goes, Oh, good, you're here. We've been waiting for you. And so he just grabs me and drags me into the room before I even can sign in or anything. And he hands me a stack of paper. And I walk into the room, and there, it was a very crowded room and faces that I would soon get to know as, you know, the, the hierarchy of Seinfeld, Larry David, Peter Melman, Andy Ackerman, Carol Leifer, you know, all these faces were in this room. Spike Ferriston, the kid that wrote the soup Nazi script. And I say kid because he looked like a little kid. It's <laughs> like, what is he doing here? But what caught my eye is at the end of the room, there were these two desks, you know, butted up again, like, you know, dueling pianos kind of. And of course, Larry David was at one of them. I had no idea who he was. And Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry just like looks at me and goes, hey, how you doing? And remembering advice I had been given by another incredible character actress, Sherry North, she later played Kramer's mom (laughs) on Seinfeld. But uh, I remember she once said to me, you're a character actor. And she goes, so when you walk into a room and you're playing a character, don't let them see who you really are. Just be the character. Because she goes, they don't have the imagination. It to separate. If you like, go, hi, how are you? And then go into a character. So I just looked at Jerry and just kind of grunted. I went like, ah, and, uh, <laughs> Mark said, okay, well, let's just do it. You know, do what you did with Brian the other day and let's just do it. I'll read with you. And so we just launched into it and Jerry was cackling. I mean, I thought he was like messing with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was laughing so hard and, and, of course, he you knows the voice, so I knew that was him laughing louder than anybody else. And when we got to the end of the first three scenes, I realized there was more. But I didn't want to stop because he was laughing so hard. So I did something that most actors probably wouldn't usually do, is I just went on ice cold, ice cold dialogue that i had never even looked at in the, in the next, which turned out to be three more scenes You know, usually you want to at least get comfortable with the words and whatever. But I just, I you know, I just picked it up off the page and went on. And he continued to laugh like that. So finally I was done, and Mark immediately said, don't leave, wait, you know, go out there and wait. And so I was out there sitting there, and I recognized another actor, uh, John Paragon, who was, you know, Jombie in the TV screen on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And I recognized him and he and this other actor, Yule Vasquez, who um, I've seen a lot of since, but I didn't recognize him at the time. The two of them were auditioning for the Armoire Thieves. (laughs) And uh, I remember Yule saying, I distinctly remember him going like, oh God, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever done. And John's going, you were good. You were good. And he goes, oh no, I was an idiot. I was bouncing off the walls. And I said, what did you do? And he goes, oh, I just, I added kind of a Cuban accent to this character, and and it was just stupid. I was lisping, and it was Cuban, and then I just, I think I was just overacting my brains out. And uh, all of a sudden, Mark comes out of the room, walks right up to the two of them, and and in my earshot, he goes, okay, you two are hired, so just be on soundstage nine at one o'clock. And... (laughs) and I'm going like oh shoot shoot they're going to ca- they're casting it right now i like I do not even get to leave and, you know and so i waited for about i don't know a half an hour maybe and finally mark calls me back in and jerry says to me you know man it was really funny but um i i don't know why the character has to be so mean all the time And he goes, so, you know, maybe give it a little, you know, and he made this, like, hills and valleys motion with his hand, which at the time was probably one of my least favorite things a director would would do. (laughs) Because variety to me is, like, phony. It's like you play the character for real. And if he has variety, he's that kind of guy. If he doesn't have variety, he's not that kind of guy, you know. I didn't see the Soup Nazi as that kind of guy, you know. I saw him as very strict and, and... you know, whatever. And so I I went, okay, you know, and I tried really hard to do it that way to make the soup Nazi like kind of a nicer guy, you know, and only get mad at one point or two points. And it just felt really weird to me. And he didn't laugh at all. And, you know, I thought in my mind, well, God, it was good while it lasted, you know. So they, you know, then Mark said, don't leave yet. I went outside, and I sat in that chair for maybe another 20 minutes to a half an hour. And finally, Mark comes out, and he goes, you know, we're having something of a, a conceptual disagreement in there. I'll always remember those words. And he goes, go ahead and go home. And, you know, if we need you, we'll call you. But I knew, of course, that they had already, you know, that they were going right to work. So I figured I didn't get it. And then as I came out of the building, Richard Libertini was coming back. And he was walking with a man who I didn't recognize, who I'd later know as Larry David. And so he was coming back into the building. And I thought, oh, well, you know, what a story I have to tell now. So there was a payphone behind stage nine with they did Seinfeld. And I called my wife and I said, boy, you're not going to believe this morning I've had. I said, first of all, there were six scenes, not three. So it was a bigger part than I thought. And she goes, wow. And I go, and you know who I was reading against? And she goes, who? And I said, Richard Libertini. And she goes, oh, my God. And I said, I know he got the part. But, you know, I mean, they brought me back in. Like, I mean, they brought me into the room twice. And she goes, oh, my God, that's fantastic. You must feel so good. And I said, well, I, I do. I do feel pretty good. And I said, you know, instead of going back to work, why don't, why don't we, uh, you know, go have lunch on the beach somewhere and celebrate? And she said, yeah, you know. So I hung up the phone and I started to walk away and my pager went off and it was Mike the warehouse agent that just had seen a ghost again <laughs> and I went back to the phone and I called him and he's going more surprised than ever he's going you uh, Larry you, you just got hired on Seinfeld
1: and oh. I went, what
0: why you know <laughs> why Edwards are Libertini you know and he goes he goes they they, they hired you it's top of show, so it's like $2,610. And uh, it's the title. And in case you didn't know, it's the title character of the episode. And uh, they want you to go over to Soundstage 9. And I'm just going like, holy Moses. So I, you know, I called my wife back, and I go, you're not going to believe this, but I just got the part. And so I went, I went over, went into the Soundstage, and the first thing that happened is Jerry just beelined over to me and said, hey, man, hey, man, you know, that direction I gave you, he goes, forget about that. He goes, just, just do it the way you did it when you came in. The, the, for some reason, the meaner, the funnier, you know. And I went, okay, okay, cool. And then, you know, the, the rest was, as they say, history, I guess. You know, we had a four-day work week. because uh, It was in the end of September, the beginning of October, where Rosh Hashanah falls. So there was a day off in the middle of the week, I think. And... You know, we we rehearsed in four days and shot on the fourth night and it was paradise. You know, in fact, Tom Barry, who played the building, Elaine's building superintendent in that episode, Mm -hmm. I remember I'll always remember sitting next to each other uh, in the bleachers, just like watching them rehearse the Jerry's living room scenes, which are always the longest scenes. And uh, he just leans over to me and he goes, man, is this paradise or what? And I said, "Yeah, God, can you imagine doing this every day, coming to work and doing this every day?" No, <laughs> and he just looked up, Of course, you know, Tom's done wonderful things since then, and uh it was just you know it was so much fun just watching them rehearse. We didn't really get me on my feet until the last day because they had to build the soup set, which good trivia was butt up against Jerry's living room,
1: huh. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it was on the other side of the wall from Jerry's living room, <coughs> inside.
1: Did you have any, any concept? Now, I mean, Seinfeld had been popular, top show on TV, and you knew things tended to go into the, the lexicon like yada, 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 you know, <laughs> but it was still very popular. Did you have any sense whatsoever that this could become a cultural icon? Any idea whatsoever?
0: Nothing. Nothing. I didn't see no soup for you as any kind of catchphrase that anybody would ever say again. I didn't see my character as the standout character in that episode, because when we sat down at the table read, Yule Vasquez had Julia and Michael and Jason and Jerry and Larry all on the floor with laughter because they were supposed to be in the story in case you haven't. This is, I think, in the uh, special material for season seven. Spike says it. But he wrote the script all by himself, total solo script, which was incredible. But Larry David added one thing to it. He said, These two armoire thieves, I think they need to be gay. <clears throat> he said, If two guys are stealing an armoire, they should be gay. So Larry added that. And then Ewell Vasquez added the Cuban accent.
1: I remember that, yeah.
0: So. He was, and I thought this guy is going to steal this show, and you know it's going to it's going to be incredible. His character is going to take off, and they did come back twice. But um, yeah, so I never even thought that my character was going to be like a standout character. I just felt like I'm getting twenty six hundred and ten dollars. I won't get kicked out of my acting class. Although, by the way, I did book the job on Power Rangers. And that was really what got me not kicked out of my acting class, although as the years went by, my teacher twisted uh, the truth a little bit and would tell everyone, you know, I threatened to kick this guy out of class and he, you know, gets a part that got him an Emmy nomination, you know.
1: And made you a cultural icon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he liked the story better that that was the part that got me well, I
1: think it's a good I think it's a good lesson. I mean, you could be very good at whatever you do in life, whatever it might be. But if you're not a little bit assertive at the the right time, you might miss a huge opportunity, which you would have. Now, I have to ask you this. I've I've interviewed um, uh, some some great actors on this show and uh, some people have had some real kind of like the soup Nazi iconic kind of characters uh, uh, come to mind. Uh, Don Most, who played Ralph Mouth for years on Happy Days. And I asked him the question and I've asked some others. When you're this kind of character and you're so imprinted on the minds of people, on one hand, it's a tremendous blessing. I've got to believe it's a tremendous blessing. But it can have its challenges, too, in terms of getting typecast. Was that, is that, has that been a concern at all? Or is it more just, hey, I'm just very thankful that this happened and has given me other opportunities?
0: Yeah, you just said it. That's exactly the way I feel. At, At that point, I was in my late 30s. You know, I had spent the previous 18 years basically trying to be an actor with with no real results, a lot of experience, you know, but no real like money, anything like that. And so, you know, any, you know, after Seinfeld, of course, I got to audition for numerous guest spots. And that's where I, you know, peppered my resume, as you saw in IMDb with all these other guest spots. And so suddenly, I mean, I I actually earned health insurance through the Screen Actors Guild for the first time. So it was nothing but fantastic for me. It's where I had been working towards being all those years. You know, I I didn't even have a specific idea anymore of like, what do you want to be? You want to be, you know, a co-star of movies. You want to be guest star or have a TV series. You know, at that point, it was like, I just want to work. I just want to be in this business and actually, you know, get a paycheck for what I do and not do it for free anymore. So it was nothing but fantastic for me. If it got any kind of typecasting or held me back from anything else, I probably wouldn't ever know that because, you know, one thing about being a journeyman actor is nobody tells you anything. If you audition for something, there's two answers, yes or ignore.
1: Yeah, it's like a black box.
0: Yeah, you don't even get told, like, why you didn't get something or what you might have done wrong. Once in a while, if you're if you're really young and you're just starting out, it's cool for a, an agent to call the casting office and get feedback for you. But if you're supposedly experienced, you know, they don't want to do that because it'll make you look like an amateur, like you're looking for an acting lesson, you know. So you don't get any of that. And so most, you know, I, I don't really know if anyone had on their mind that, oh, I can't cast him. He's too, he's the soup Nazi. But one time I did a episode of CSI and I was at the callback and there was a, a group of people in the room and the director, he said to me, uh, it was a convenience store owner. And he goes, uh, do it with a Middle Eastern accent. And the guy next to him, uh, elbowed him and said, have you looked at his resume? And he goes, no, why? And he goes, look at his resume. And he looks at my resume and he goes, Oh geez, you were the soup Nazi. And I said, yeah. And he goes, Oh wow. Well, better not do a Middle Eastern accent then. And he goes, do you do any others? And I said, every other, I go, you, you pick one, <laughs> look at my face, pick an accent and I can do it. And so he goes, No, oh, how about Russian? So I did it with a Russian accent and he ca- and they cast me. You know, although when you see that, if you ever do see the clip, I I don't actually speak with the Russian accent because just before we shot, literally, he goes, I have an idea. And I said, what? And he goes, instead of using the Russian accent, do it as if you're second generation, like your parents speak with an accent, but you don't. And I kind of looked at him like. Are you insane? <laughs> what did you have for breakfast? I mean, how do you do? How do you speak without an accent, but speak as if your parents have an accent? Yeah, that's
1: that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> my wife's Italian. Her dad's a Italian off the boat, but she speaks like any middle American would speak. I mean, there's no there's no hint of that. So yeah, how would you play that?
0: So I, I did a, a stab at it. I, I often you know ask my friends uh, if we're ever watching my reel, and it's all on YouTube, by the way. And my website, which is realsoupnazi.com. You can see my whole drama reel and comedy demo reel. And it's on there. And I often ask people, do you hear that? Did I do that? And, (laughs) and, And actors will go, yeah, there's something weird about the way you're talking. That isn't the way you usually talk. So I tried something.
1: Well, it must have worked. It must have worked now. And I know that we've we've run long, but I'm okay with it if you're okay with it. The thing is, is that uh, what are you doing today? Because I want to get across on these shows, I want to let people know that no matter how iconic, we're usually talking to people who are very much still in the business, still involved. And in terms of what Larry Thomas is doing today, what are you doing today?
0: Well, more indie films than anything else. The industry has sort of shifted because... Mostly of reality television, it's shifted, and the kind of t v guest spots I used to do on big shows i don't go out for as much you You see more like people who have had t v series and you know people that have been pretty big in movies doing those guest spots, and guys like me are now doing lots of indie films because. Now, you know, cameras are so inexpensive. They got the red cam and the, you know, everybody's making their own movie now. So when a guy writes, used to write a script, he used to have to go pedal it to the studios and try to sell his script. Now he makes his own movie and it's going on in every city, everywhere. And it's
1: just like podcasting. It's like he used to have to have a radio show and now I have a radio
0: show. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's the same thing, you know? So so these indie films are being made constantly. It depends where they're going. So I've been making those. I just won an award, actually my first ever acting award, a couple of months ago in Chicago. Uh, I made a film called Mind Over Mindy, where I played a schizophrenic psychiatrist uh, made by a guy named Robert Alanese out of Chicago. And it won a couple of film festivals. And in one of the festivals, I won the Best Supporting Actor Award. So it was really funny, I mean... Being my age and winning your very first acting award, it was a big thing, and so...
1: Well, congratulations on that. And the thing that I love to see in, in movies or on the stage, but in movies in particular, is when somebody plays against type or maybe it's something they don't expect. I think of that role that Robin Williams did years ago, obviously, before his uh, uh, sad passing, where he played uh, the psychotic film developer. I can't remember the name of that movie. But when you see somebody who you, you've got in their mind, this is who that person is. And then they play the, you know, they, they usually play the next door neighbor nice guy. And then they play the crazed psychopath. I love those kind of turns when you see, because that proves that that person is not just that one character you have in your mind, but they can, they can play anything.
0: Well, you know, then, then in under those circumstances, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because that, that has always been my career, you know, and no one's ever cast me in just a regular guy role. And, uh, I'm always playing somebody really odd. And I was even in even in college theater. But um, recently, I uh, was sitting with these guys who were, uh, one was the director and the other the producer, and they were making a film with uh, Danica McKellar called Mommy, I Didn't Do It. And uh, it was a s- sequel to another movie she had made with them called The Wrong Woman, you know, kind of based on Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. And uh, so they were making this movie and they said, you know, God, you know, we'd love to have you in our movie somewhere. And I said, well, you know, I'm always ready to work. What are you, what are you thinking? And the director goes, you know, the guy, the father in the beginning of the movie, you know, she, the movie starts with her getting his son off on a um, attempted murder charge or something. And, and the father, you know, has to thank her, but at the same time tell her he's out of work and he can't afford to pay her. And I said, Oh, that's, that's a sweet role. I said, you know, I never get to play that stuff. And they go, you want to do it? And I said, yeah. And so, you know, I, I played a character that I never get to play just a normal, you know, dad, a normal guy who happens to be out of work. You know, he's not crazy. He's not psychotic. (laughs) He doesn't have an accent. He's, you know what I mean? And nothing funny. It's just a normal guy. So, um, I had a lovely time doing that with Danica McKellar. She's a doll. She couldn't be more sweet, you know, exactly the way you'd want Winnie to have grown up.
1: And a math genius to boot. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately for me, when they sold the movie to Lifetime, Lifetime cut my scene.
1: Ah. <laughs> uh. Oh, that's that's a that's a tough one.
0: Yeah, it was in the movie. They did a little premiere in uh, near the TV Academy in North Hollywood, and it was still in the movie. But then Lifetime bought it from them and needed to cut a few more minutes out, and out went my scene. So, you know, if you see the movie on Lifetime, you'll see me there in the courtroom. You know, motioning to my son. But that scene that I really loved of uh, you know having to tell her I can't afford to pay her is, is out. But um, so, yeah, I never get to play that kind of role. And that, you know, that's another thing in the career of of journeyman actors. You think, you know, somebody's career like, oh, I saw him in Austin Powers. I saw him in Seinfeld, you know, this and that. You have no idea all the things you didn't see me in that I did, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I mean, I I can't I I have two experiences that actors laugh at all the time and I made because I made a mistake twice. When I did my scene on Scrubs, which a lot of people like, but they don't realize like how long it was (laughs) when we shot it, there was this really funny speech in it when Zach Braff goes, "Aren't you the soup Nazi from Seinfeld?" and I go, and originally I said no, and I paused, and then I have this speech. Um, I happen to be a character actor that has played many various roles through the years, and it's a little bit shallow to pigeonhole a guy in one TV guest spot he did over eight years ago, don't you think? And then he says, come on, say the soup thing. And I go, no. And then later, of course, he talks me into it or tricks me into it. And all day long, Tara Reid kept saying to me, that speech is perfect. That speech is going to change your career. When, when people from Hollywood hear that speech, they're going to know that that's exactly what they've been doing to you. And, and it's going to do wonders for your career. And when it came out, when I saw it on TV, what they did was they changed the meaning of me denying, like, I wasn't denying wanting to be the soup Nazi. I was denying that I was the guy. So they cut the speech completely out so that he goes, aren't you the soup Nazi from Seinfeld? And I just go, no. And he goes, come on, say the soup thing. And I go, no. And that's so they changed it from me, you know, being me to that. And uh, another time I got this part on a show that only lasted one season called Threshold with uh, Carla Gugino in it and and, a couple of other people. It was a sci-fi show. And I played this, yes, Middle Eastern cafe owner that they were questioning about Brent Spiner's character, like, does he come in here every day or whatever? And there was this really cool speech. That they say something like, um, do you get a lot of people in here during the day or whatever? And I go, oh, or do you do a lot of business during the day? And I say something like, no, mostly students that sit there on their laptops using my Wi-Fi, but not buying anything. And I, I thought that was a great speech because it, it's, when you come from, You know, dad who owned a restaurant, you know, the business. And I really felt something for that little speech. And I felt it gave the man character and, you know, kind of lets you know who he is, which you don't always get from a little guest spot. So I but I made the same mistake. I answered the question and paused. So once again, that speech got cut out.
1: (laughs) Well, we're not going to cut out anything on this. Not that millions will hear, but we're going to leave it in its entirety. You've been so generous with your time and your insight. It's been so much fun. It's one of those things where you learn that actually Larry Thomas is not a Nazi of any type, but just a, a really nice guy. Now, Larry, where can people find your book? Where can they find your website and connect with everything you have done and everything you are doing now and be doing in the future?
0: Well, go you know definitely check out the website. It's realsoupnazi dot com. Just three words, not the, but realsoupnazi.com. dot com. And there's all kinds of stuff on there. You know, I'm I'm most proud of the fact that I had some videotapes of theater from back in the '80s, and I digitized them, and my my webmaster put it on the website, so you could actually see little snippets of like crazy 1980s theater that that's on there and. uh, find out what's going on and all that stuff. My book is there, you know, you could click on it, shows you where to buy it, either signed or unsigned. And um, that's pretty much it, you know. Uh, hopefully the next time I have like a movie that shows on Lifetime or something, I'll actually be in it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and um, just I just appreciate everybody You know, that has amazed me through the years that continues to love Seinfeld because it's just an amazing thing to me that that new generations and and everywhere in the world, they love Seinfeld. I, I get letters from Bosnia and Croatia and the Netherlands and you name it, you know, people are watching Seinfeld to this day. And, and they love it as much as anything that's on TV now, and it just does my heart good that I, at, you know, at one moment of my career, I, I hit a show that was going to go down in history as, you know, one of the great, great comedies.
1: It's like having been in I Love Lucy. I mean, it's going to be that way, you know. I hate to be morbid, but once we're both gone... Seinfeld will be still playing and people will still be laughing at it and they'll still be laughing at Larry Thomas. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure.
1: Well, I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. What a great way to kind of relaunch this podcast. And I hope that you'll tell your friends, not only do we have some great episodes coming up on things like the Twilight Zone and Mary Tyler Moore and one of the great actors, from Little House on the Prairie. But we have a great backlog of shows that we did when we kind of started this podcast in the past. But I'm giving it months now. We're going to give it a good long run and see how people react. If you like this show, please go rate, review, and subscribe wherever you may listen. iTunes, the podcast app on your iPhone, your iPad, Stitcher Radio, iHeart Radio. Certainly rate, And where they give you the option, review and subscribe so you never, never miss an episode of TV you grew up with. We've got some good stuff coming. So, as they say in classic TV, please stay tuned. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.